Acts chapter 9, and uh, we'll be reading in just a minute here, verses 1 through 19. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Uh, The book of Acts covers the historical events that happened after the ascension of Jesus to heaven. He lived, died, rose again for the sins of the world. He ascended to heaven. And the book of Acts tells us what happens next. And here in Acts chapter 9, we, we hit a very uh, monumental moment now in the book of Acts. Let's pray as we get going here. Well, Father, you are the one who breathed out these scriptures for our eternal good. And we would just ask, Father, that um, you would uh, send your spirit across the room into hearts And that combination of word and spirit would do amazing things within our hearts. Lord, we are are hopeless apart from you. There's nothing that we can do uh, hopeless. Lord, even the sermon would be five loaves and two fish. It's not going to go far in here. But we know when your disciples hand five loaves and two fish to you, Lord Jesus, that you can break it, bless it, give it back to them, and it can be distributed and feed many. So I just look to you, Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, my precious King, and just ask, will you bless us this morning uh, in and through your word, uh, we pray. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Well, most of you have probably some sort of uh, amazing lost and found story in, in your life. Something maybe precious to you was, was lost and you sought relentlessly for that thing. And actually then finding that thing was rather miraculous. Uh, Molly and I recently watched a movie called Lion. A true story of a boy in India named Saru five years old, was separated from his older brother, Gadu, at a train station in India. He just so happened to end up on a train all by himself, five years old. That took him a thousand miles away. No way he would get back. He landed in an orphanage. He was adopted. He was taken to a different country. And the movie Lion then chronicles his many-year against all odds journey as an adult to find his home really is an amazing lost and found story would encourage you to watch it and what we have in acts 9 now is one of the most famous lost and found stories in history as god now finds a lost soul we see here now the conversion of a man named saul His salvation, a pivotal moment in Acts. Up to to this point in Acts, the gospel message of Christ has been spreading. Started in Jerusalem, it's been moving out. And then up to Acts 8, it was just Jews or or half-Jews who were turning to Christ in faith. But at the end of Acts 8, which we saw last week, the gospel just took its first step into the Gentile world world. God, back in Acts 8, right at the end, bringing one man, an Ethiopian, to faith in Christ, most likely a non-Jewish Gentile. And now, with this salvation of Saul, the gospel will absolutely explode into the Gentile world. That This man, Saul, ultimately becoming the Apostle Paul, 
and then taking the gospel everywhere. So Saul's conversion, so important in the book of Acts that Luke, who wrote Acts, actually will tell us about it three times. This is the first one right here. This conversion, just one of the most important moments in Acts. This conversion here, this salvation, is one of the most important moments in all of human history. Saul will impact the entire world. He, he, he will write half of the New Testament, which has been read by billions of people. William J. Larkin said this, said the most important event in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, is the conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. One of the most important events in human history right here. Let's go ahead and read it. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter this city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying." And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Amen. That right there is, it is just a massive moment in, in human history. One of the most famous, most famous of all lost and found stories. And, and with Saul's conversion here, we learn some simple truths about conversion in general. 
We, we learn some simple truths about how people come to, to Christ in faith. Now, every salvation, it's not going to happen like Saul's did, okay? It, it is, you're not going to be uh, have some necessarily Damascus Road experience and a light from heaven and bang, you're saved. No, most conversions are much less dramatic, may take longer. There's a phrase, grace comes softly. God's grace often penetrating a human heart slowly, gently softly over over time but with Saul's conversion here we can see some general characteristics that can be found in every conversion I think we can see four characteristics here found in every conversion in a person's coming to Christ in faith and and the first characteristic of every conversion that we see here a lost soul a lost soul. That, that, that's what we have at, at the start of the passage here. It's a lost soul or a lost Saul, if you like that better. Uh, we know some things about this guy Saul from the rest of the Bible. The Bible says that, that he was a Jew by birth, born in Tarsus, which was about 350 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem in the country of Cilicia. So raised in a foreign country, a Jewish family, but I mean born in, in, in a foreign country, but Saul was raised in Jerusalem. His parents apparently moving there at some point, raising Paul in, Saul in Jerusalem, and Saul was trained there in Jerusalem to be a Pharisee. Uh, a Jewish religious leader, he trained under Gamaliel, one of the the most famous rabbis of all time. And Saul, man, this guy Saul was a really good Pharisee. Uh, followed all of the rules and then some. You, you know the, the guy in school who drove you crazy? Because he followed all of the rules, even the rules that didn't exist. And when you didn't follow the rules, he told the teacher about you. Well, that was essentially Paul or Saul as, as a Pharisee. Paul, Saul would later call himself the Pharisee of Pharisees. This, this guy followed all the rules. Saul had immersed himself in the Old Testament scriptures. He, he said he followed God's laws zealously. And he also followed the thousands of other rabbinic laws that had been added to God's laws. Saul said that as for righteousness under these laws, he was blameless. Now he wasn't, not at all in the sight of God, but in his eyes, a blameless man under these laws, Pharisee of Pharisees. But what Saul didn't know yet was that even though he thought he was serving God, well, Saul was actually now opposing God because Saul was opposing Jesus, God's only son, eternal son of God, the one true Messiah. But Saul, at this point, thought Jesus was an imposter, a false Messiah. And Saul now, here in Acts, well, Saul has been persecuting Christ's followers. Jesus, when, when Jesus was earlier still on this earth, he, he had said this to his followers in John 16, 2. He, he said, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And that was Saul, killing Christians, thinking it was service to God. And, and Saul in his lost pre-conversion, pre-Christ state here, well, this man was an absolute monster. 
When, when, when Luke describes this pre-Christian Saul in Acts, well, Luke purposely uses Greek language that is used in other places in the Bible to describe a wild boar devastating a vineyard, a wild beast mauling its prey. And Luke grabs that same language, uses it to describe Saul. John Calvin said that Luke portrayed Saul as a wild and ferocious beast. Saul is a hunter. He has been fervently stalking Christians to kill them and obliterate the Christian faith. He started hunting Christians back in Acts 7 when Stephen, an early Christian, was stoned. Saul was there approving of the stoning, holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. And Saul then went on a rampage against the Christians there in Jerusalem. But now, Acts chapter 9, well, Saul now begins to hunt Christians outside of Jerusalem. You look at verse 1 again, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And hidden in there is just one more animal-like reference from Luke. Luke says Saul was breathing threats and murder. One writer says that Luke gave us there an allusion to the panting or the snorting of wild beasts before killing their prey. And, and Saul now, breathing threats and murder, goes to the high priest in Jerusalem, asks for letters. He asks for official papers to go to Damascus. 135 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem, Damascus was just outside of the, Israel's, the Israeli border. I've got a map for you here. I don't know how well you can see this map. That's the Mediterranean Sea on the left. That's Jerusalem down low there. And that's Saul's path up to Damascus, upper right corner, just outside of the Israeli border. Damascus was the first city outside of Israel known to have a small community of Christians. They, they, they very likely scattered there when Saul started the persecution back in Acts chapters 7 and 8. And, and, and Saul has now learned about this community up there in Damascus, these Christians, and he now gets papers. They're essentially extradition papers from the high priest. So he can go to Damascus, and if he finds any Christians there, whether they're men or women, he can give these papers to the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues there in Damascus, and they will then know that Saul can extradite them back to prison in Jerusalem. This monster. And you'll notice in in verse 2, Luke says the early Christians belonged to the way. We'll see that name now several times in the book of Acts. That was one of the earliest names for Christianity. the, The way. Jesus said in the book of John, he said that he was the way, the truth, 
and the life. Jesus, the one and only way to God. And Christians are now following that one true way to God, and they are called the way. There's a little irony in this passage. You may have caught it when I read it. He, Saul is going to persecute the way, the Christians, and God says, and, and Luke says here at one point that Saul went on his way. And I think it's a bit ironic from Luke. He's on the wrong way, thinking he's on the right way. Saul, now violent hunter, monster, breathing threats and murder against the early church, starts this 135-mile trek, and he is going to crush the way to crush the church of Jesus Christ in Damascus. And, you know, what we see with Paul right there is just a very lost soul. He thinks he's serving God. He's actually opposing God. He's he's hostile toward God, hostile toward God's people. He's an enemy of God. And in just a minute, Saul will be blind. Some sort of scales on his eyes, which is a picture of Saul's spiritual condition right now. He thinks he sees, but he's living in complete darkness. He is a lost soul. And that right there is a characteristic in every single conversion. It starts with a lost soul. That picture of Saul there. Well, well, well Saul there is essentially you. Me, in, in our pre-Christ condition. The Bible says that in your natural born state, you, you're hostile toward God. Toward God's people, you're, you're an actual enemy of, of God. And, and you're blind, like Saul. Now in your pre-Christian state, you, you might not have looked hostile. You might have looked very gentle, wouldn't hurt a, a, a flea. But you're a sinner. And even you have rebelled against God. So God sees you as hostile, an enemy, blind, living in darkness. Here's how God sees all of us in our pre-Christ condition. Colossians 1.21, and you were hostile in mind. Romans 5.10, we were enemies. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Hostile. Enemy. Blind. Not just Saul. But every lost soul. But, but the, the beautiful thing, man, is that Christ came to save even the worst of lost souls. You know what Paul will call himself later? Paul will call himself the chiefest of sinners because he persecuted Christians. He saw himself as the worst of sinners. But what we see here in this passage is that Jesus saves even the worst of sinners. Jesus came to save his enemies. Oh man, Jesus loving his enemies all the way to the cross. Jesus taking the sins of his enemies upon himself. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And now even the worst of sinners like Saul, like you, like me, we can now be forgiven. You turn to Christ in repentance and faith, and, and you're forgiven, the Bible says. But man, that's, that's what we see at the first part of the passage. That, that's one characteristic of every 
conversion or every salvation story, it, it, it starts with a lost soul. And a second characteristic that we can see here, a characteristic that is a part of every single conversion story, a sovereign find. A sovereign find. <laughs> Man, God now here with Saul. God very sovereignly now, all by himself, <laughs> finds this lost soul. And man, do, do pause for a second. There's something you have to catch about Saul here. This guy Saul was not looking for Christ at all. To, to be saved by Christ? No way. This guy was maybe more opposed to Christ than any person ever. Heading 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Hunting Christ's people. Definitely not looking for Christ. But Christ was looking for him. <laughs> Saul doesn't know it, but this hunter here, he's actually the hunted. There's a phrase, comes from a poem by, by Francis Thompson. I haven't ever read the poem, so if it's terrible, it's heretical, don't blame me. But the title of it, God is called the Hound of Heaven. And this Hound of Heaven has been tracking Saul. And here Saul goes now, breathing threats and murder against Christ, looking to kill Christians and Jesus sovereignly stops him dead in his tracks. You look at verse 3, now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice. Can you picture it? Suddenly, walk in with his buddies, this light. Saul says later in Acts, it was around noon, and it was brighter than the sun. And it literally flashed around him. So powerful, it knocked him to the ground. And blinds him. I grew up with a song. Blinded by the light. <laughs> well there it is. Right there. Saul blinded. By the light. And it's a picture of Saul's spiritual condition at this time. Living in darkness. And Saul now hears this voice from heaven. Verse 4. Saying. Saul, Saul. And anytime you see two words together like that, it indicates emotion in the Bible. So there is emotion coming from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? Or, or sir, not knowing who it was. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Man, the risen Christ, he's, he's not dead Saul thought he was. The risen Christ 
living, ascended now to the right hand of the Father, speaks. And man, what a great statement from Christ there. Why, Saul, are you persecuting me? Saul had never laid one finger on Jesus himself when he was on earth. But Saul now persecuting Christians? And Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Why? Because Christians are one with Christ. They are one with Him. Christians now the very body of Christ on earth. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ. And Saul here, persecuting Christians, was persecuting Christ Himself. And man, you, you, you just pause here and you think about this concept that shows up right here of Christ's oneness with believers, we being the very body of Christ now. Man, that will soon become one of Saul's most precious concepts. Later, as, as, as a Christian, of all the theological concepts that Saul will love and will write about, I don't know that any of them will be more precious to, the, to him than a believer's union with Christ. He writes about it all the time. The Apostle Paul will say Christians are now united to Christ. Have died with Christ. They, they've, they've been raised with Christ right now. Right now you, you, you are living with Christ. Seated with Christ in heaven. In, in his letters Paul will use this little phrase in Christ hundreds of times. It is just this little Pauline identity marker. A believer's union with Christ. And, and where does Paul initially learn about a believer's union with Christ? Right here. Burned into his circuits. Saul, why are you persecuting me? You touch my people. You touched me. And Jesus, man, he has stopped this hunter dead in his tracks and then gives him instructions. If you look at verse 6, but rise, Jesus says, from heaven and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul's friends traveling with him they didn't see anybody. They saw the voice, may have seen the light. They didn't see anybody. Saul saw, Saul saw somebody. He will later say that he actually saw Christ here. A, a, a post-ascension appearance of the resurrected Christ. Saul now a new eyewitness to the resurrection. One of the primary qualifications for an apostle. Now Paul will say later, I was... One untimely born when I saw Christ. I didn't see him when he was still on earth, but I saw Christ. But, but Saul now, now he's blinded by this light. And he has to be led to Damascus. And listen, this guy is a humbled man at this point. John Stott says this, he who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. And verse 9 says, for the next three days, 
Saul remained blind. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. Most likely a time of deep reflection for the apostle, or for Saul, pre-apostle Paul. How could this be? I, I, I thought Jesus was dead. He, he, he was an imposter, thought I was serving God. Could I really have been that wrong? And that happens in every conversion. At some point you realize, how could I have been that wrong about Christ? And you know, you, you know, you look at this guy now, what's happened to him, and you, you know what we see clearly here with Saul's entire conversion? A sovereign find. This is 100% Christ. And Christ alone. Every last bit of it. Saul was not looking for Christ here to be saved. No, Saul was persecuting Christ. But Christ was looking for Saul. And the hound of heaven has now found Saul. Every last bit of this was Christ. And you know what that's called? Well, that's simply called grace. Sovereign grace. Jesus, all by himself, has now found a lost soul. All grace, grace alone. Sovereign grace. <laughs> and that's how every salvation works. You know one of the reasons? So that no man may boast. Scriptures say that over and over and over again. You're saved in a way that you can never boast. And you know the way that you'll never be able to boast in your own salvation? If it's by sovereign grace. A grace alone. 100% Christ. Man, you, in, in your lost condition, you don't somehow find Christ. No, Christ finds you. Jesus says in Luke 19, I came to seek and to save the lost. A lost sheep doesn't find the shepherd, doesn't save himself or, or herself. You think of a sheep. A sheep that's lost is not going to find the shepherd again. That's not how it works. No, the shepherd finds the sheep, saves the sheep, 100% shepherd. And if you, in, in your lost condition, if you do in some way start to seek Christ, you, you start looking to be saved by Christ, well, that, according to John 6, is just because God the Father has now been drawing you to Christ. That anonymous hymn I quoted last week, I sought the Lord... And afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Saul's conversion here, 100% Christ, 100% grace. It's all God. John Stott says this, If we ask what caused Saul's conversion, only one answer is possible. What stands out from the narrative is the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. Saul did not decide for Christ, as we might say. On the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. The evidence for this is indisputable. And you know what is so amazingly encouraging about this conversion here? 
this guy didn't seem ripe at all for conversion. Man, in the passage of last week, the Ethiopian at least seemed a little ripe. I mean, he was kind of seeking God. Saul seems about as unripe as could be. (laughs) And yet in a heartbeat, Christ has sovereignly intervened. And now, now think of your seemingly unripe family members and and friends. You've loved them. You've prayed for them. You've tried to share the gospel with them for years maybe. And nothing. Hard as rock. But Christ is sovereign. He is all powerful and in a heartbeat. He can turn that heart. One second, nothing. But then the next, that proud person humbled, ready to receive Christ, praying as Luke says now. No one beyond the reach of Christ's sovereign grace. Not even Saul. So don't quit praying for those people who seem hard as rock. Christ is sovereign, not them. So that's the second thing here. I think the second characteristic of every conversion on this earth, a lost soul, and then a sovereign find, and a third characteristic here that we see in almost every conversion, a faithful servant. God almost always accomplishes the sovereign conversion of a lost soul through a faithful servant of His. Through one or more faithful servants. And the servant God uses here is a man named Ananias. If you look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Interesting, it's called Straight Street where Saul was going to be converted and find the straight way to heaven. The straight, go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for behold, he is praying, and he has in a vision, he, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So, so Ananias sees this vision. We, we don't know how that worked. Could have been at night, could have been the middle of the day, could have seen it out there, could have seen it in his own mind. Who knows? But, but Jesus then speaks to him, gives him directions, very, very precise directions, which Jesus is so prone to do in a really good way. Go, Ananias, to this street and this house to this man named Saul. And this man, Ananias, uh, had, and, and this man, Ananias, sorry, back up, <laughs> Ananias, this man, Saul, has also seen a vision of you coming to him and laying your hands on him that he might receive his sight. God just very sovereignly now leading Ananias directly to Saul. We saw a similar thing last week. God just sovereignly leading Philip to this Ethiopian eunuch. Philip, that desert, that chariot, go. And God now does it again. 
God just sovereignly leading his people here in Acts to just the right place at just the right time. And thank God that he still leads his people like that today. God's still sovereignly leading his people today to just the right place, to just the right, at just the right time. Now listen, God, God won't always lead you supernaturally, like in Acts. God, God could just lead you circumstantially. Why did you get fired at your job or lose your job? Well, God was getting you to this job. Why did you move to this part of the country? Well, God wanted you there. God circumstantially just arranging people and events gets you to right where he wants you, but God can also lead you supernaturally in ways similar to what God does in Acts. Can can God sovereignly lead you today through an angel like we saw last week with Philip in the previous passage? You might not know it's an angel, The Bible says that we've entertained angels unaware, but can God lead you through an angel? Can God lead you through the Spirit today, like with Philip in the last passage? The Spirit actually speaking to you in in, in your ears or your your mind or your, your heart. Maybe not audible words or maybe, I don't know, maybe the Spirit just compelling you, but you know the Spirit is speaking. Can God lead you today through a vision? Like with Ananias right here. Something you see, maybe just in your mind or maybe in a dream. Can God sovereignly lead his people today in these more supernatural ways? Absolutely. Absolutely. God is sovereign. Can do anything he wants. God can and does still lead his people today in very supernatural ways. Specific, precise, that street, that house that man go and man we desperately need that at times from god i mean man you 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 think of philip in the previous passage he needed specific direction from god that desert that chariot ananias right here needed specific direction from god that street that house that man and listen christians today Do we need specific direction any less than Christians back then? No way. We still need the sovereign, supernatural, intimate, personal, close leading of the Holy Spirit. And thank God He still does it today. Maybe leading through a prophecy as Levi spoke about a couple weeks ago. Or maybe leading His people through a dream. Or, Or maybe leading His people through a vision like with Ananias right here. Man, back in the Old Testament age, back in the Old Covenant era, Joel, he prophesied about the New Testament age, the New Covenant era in which we now live. And Joel said this in Joel 2.28. Joel said, and it shall come to pass afterward in this New Covenant era that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Joel speaking there of the entire New Covenant era. This long age of the Holy Spirit in which we now live from the start of the book of Acts where God initially 
actually poured out his spirit all the way to the return of Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians when prophecies will cease. And when will prophecies cease? When we see Christ face to face. And until that time when we see Christ face to face, prophecies will not cease. Paul has told us in the scriptures. Throughout this entire huge, incredible age, all God's people now have the Spirit living in them. And then the Spirit now sovereignly leading them personally, intimately, directly, precisely, even at times supernaturally through things like prophecies, dreams, visions to just the right place, to just the right time. I realize you might be here today and you think, well, some of that stuff stopped back in the first century. I have friends who believe like that. I've been around that mountain for 50 years. I know that thinking very, very well, and all the respect to you if, if that's what you believe. But here's what I would say. If you do think those things have ceased, just show me one text. Just show me one biblical text that says those things would cease. Just one. And I say that with grace and love in my heart. Show me the text. If somebody comes to you and says they have ceased, and if you're a member here, we've said before, you should not be wandering around telling people they've ceased because the elder's position is that they have not ceased, things like this. And so if you're a member here, please don't go around and try to make disciples telling people that. But listen, if somebody does come and tell you that these things have ceased, just say, show me a text. Not an argument from outside the text that's then brought into the text, show me the text. There's not a text. There's not a text. There's not a text. Man, praise God, he still moves today in ways like he did in the book of Acts. Praise God for that. That our God is living. He is alive. He is personal. He is intimate. And he leads his people. Man, if they needed it back then. All people in the scriptures have needed it. David went to the Lord once and said, God, do I go against the Philistines? And God spoke to him and said, go directly against the Philistines. And the next day he goes to God and says, God, do I go against the Philistines again? And God said, go around the Philistines and get them from behind. He needed specific direction from the Lord God. Philip needed it. Ananias needs it. You need it. I need it. The question is, do we look for it? Do we believe the Holy Spirit is still alive, still speaking, still moving, still guiding His people in supernatural ways? Yes, praise God He is. So God just gave Ananias here this vision, some very specific directions to this man Saul. And Ananias now, okay, God, I'm going to go talk to this guy Saul. He wants to make sure he heard right. Because Ananias has heard of Saul. Look at verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Don't you love a God who will put up with your fears at times and your hesitations and let you bring them to him? Did I just hear you right, Lord? Because this guy Saul, he's a monster. Breathing threats and murders. Now I know some of your people will be killed. Is this a suicide mission you're sending me on? And Jesus says, go. But Jesus gives him some assurance. If you look at verse 15, the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name 
before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul is a chosen instrument. Sovereignly chosen by Christ the way every salvation ultimately works. You don't ultimately choose Christ. No, Christ chooses you. And the the reason you do choose Christ is because Christ first chose you and brought you in. He sought you and found you. But man, Saul here, he he hasn't just been chosen here for salvation. No, Saul has also been chosen here by Christ to carry the name of Christ to Gentiles and kings and and Jews. And Jesus will now show Saul how much he must suffer to do that. And and, and, and that that right there is Saul's new vocation. In life, you talk about a job change. (laughs) Man, he had a commission from the high priest to kill Christians, and now he's got a commission from Christ to serve the Christian mission. You talk about a job change. That's better than going from realtor to plumber or something like that. This is dramatic. Throughout the rest of Acts, this is his calling now as the Apostle Paul. He will carry the name of Christ to kings. We'll see him sharing Christ to several kings here in Acts. And, and Paul will share Christ with the Jews. Every time, time he goes into a new town, he starts in the Jewish synagogue, telling them about Christ. And when they kick him out, and they almost always kick him out, well, Saul then goes to the Gentiles preaching Christ. And thousands of non-Jews will now come to faith in Christ. The gospel now exploding into the Gentile world through this one man. And Paul will suffer greatly for it. Suffer worse than any of the other apostles ultimately be martyred. And Ananias here receiving this assurance. Well, he's a faithful servant. And he goes. In in spite of any fear he might have felt here. And if we don't think there was any fear here, I think we've missed it probably. I think there was probably legitimate fear, but he obeys, walks through the city, knocks on the door and approaches Saul the monster. Ananias crossing the pain line, as we might say. He could get killed but he goes anyway for the sake of Christ. And what happens here is one of the more courageous and and tender moments in Acts. You look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Reaches out his hands and he touches this monster. And you just got to pause on the first word out of Ananias' mouth. Brother. Brother Saul welcoming this former killer into the family of God. John Stott says this, 
They were words of fraternal welcome. They must have been music to Saul's ears. What? Was the arch enemy of the church to be welcomed as a brother? Was the dreaded fanatic to be received as a member of the family? Yes, it was so. Man, you just pause there. Don't you know that in that that touch, in that word brother from Ananias, Saul tasted the very love of Christ himself. Jesus now very practically, very tangibly loving his enemy. And and Jesus does it here through a faithful servant. Jesus could have saved Saul without Ananias. He's sovereign. He could do anything. But Jesus has ordained to save the lost through the ministry of his people. Jesus working through, through the words and the touches of his faithful servants. Jesus now as he sits in heaven being incarnated on this earth through his body, the church. Jesus now speaking through our mouths. Jesus now touching through our hands. Jesus now embracing in our embraces. Jesus now loving his enemies through us. So man, can I encourage you, Christian, look around today. Look around. Who has Jesus sovereignly led you to placed around you that there might be fear in you when you look at that person that that neighbor you might have to cross the pain line but if jesus has sent you to that person then you can trust him even if it does bring some pain or rejection go a faithful servant speak touch love Who was the faithful servant in your conversion? Because there's almost always a faithful servant in conversion. Was it your mother, maybe? Was it it your your father? Was it a neighbor? Was it just some supposedly random person? I talked last week to a woman who was saved. She was in the service. I talked to her. She was saved as a waitress when two men, along with their tip, also wrote on a napkin... Jesus loves you very much. And she said, it ruined me. It made me mad. It made me hopeful. And she's followed Christ ever since. Raised her family to follow Christ. She is now the mother of two pastors who are leading others to follow Christ. And one of those pastors is one of our own pastors. Levi Brennan's mother. Who was the faithful servant in your conversion? Give thanks for that servant and look now to pass it on. That's the third characteristic here of almost every conversion, a faithful servant. And one final characteristic of every conversion, a lost soul, a sovereign find, a faithful servant, and finally, a merciful salvation. Look at verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And Jesus has now sovereignly sought, found, and saved the monster. Saul's new eyesight here, a picture of his new spiritual condition. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind. But now I see. 
And this man Saul, now the Apostle Paul, you know what Saul will know about himself from this point forward? Well, he'll know two things about himself. He will know he's a sinner. He will call himself the chiefest of sinners, but that's not all he knows about himself. You know what else Saul will know about himself from this day forward? Here it is, Paul's own words, Galatians 2, 20, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And that strange mixture of knowing you're a sinner and yet tasting that God loves you and Christ died for you, that is powerful. That's the gospel. The gospel says two things to you at the same time. One, it says you're way worse than you ever imagined. But at the very same time, the gospel says you are way more loved than you ever hoped. And when you really start to believe that, that is power. And the monster is changed. John Calvin said this wolf had suddenly become a sheep. And more than that, he had now even been called by God to be a shepherd of God's sheep. Amazing grace. And you look at Saul's salvation here. And you know what we see in his salvation. Mercy. Mercy. Mercy for the chiefest of sinners. God is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. And man, I I just wonder if this morning Christ might right now sovereignly be opening your heart to receive His mercy. Because if He can save Saul, He can save you too. I wonder if Christ is finding you today. You know, this right here is one of the greatest lost and found stories in history. But Jesus has done it a million times. He's so good at finding lost souls, stopping even the most violent of people dead in their tracks, humbling their hearts, the hound of heaven in a heartbeat, changing a leper's spots, and melting a heart of stone. Not always this dramatic, but he's really, really good at doing it. Grace comes softly, slowly at times. The tender love of Christ softly drawing you in. You don't ultimately find Christ. He finds you but the shepherd can find you is he finding you today if your heart is turning to christ in faith then you can turn back and you can say christ found me and if you today are right now trusting in the lord jesus christ a sincere faith i want you to know you've been found by christ and god no longer sees you as a hostile blind enemy No, the Lord Jesus Christ has stretched out his hand, put it on your shoulder and said, welcome to my family, brother or sister. That's you. My prayer today is to say God would open our hearts to receive Christ by faith. And once you receive him, he'll never let you go ever, ever, ever. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that salvation truly is all of you. Sovereign. You seeking, you finding, you saving, you opening our hearts to receive you. We would not trust in you, Lord Jesus Christ, unless by the Spirit you gave us the ability, the desire to trust in you. So Lord, do it. Give us a desire to trust in Christ, to fall in love with Christ today. Lord, help us, we pray. We thank you for your mercy poured out to the chiefest of sinners, who once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're receiving the Lord's Supper, and we do, uh, we do,